Thanks, Dave. Good morning. My name is Jeff, one of the pastors here. Glad that you are with us this morning. Welcome to Parkway. As uh, Dave just read, we will be in Romans 5, verses 1 through 5 this morning. So as you make your way there in your Bibles or on your tablets or phones or whatever it might be, I want to tell you a little bit of a story. So when I was a kid, one of the ways that I found uh, worth and value and esteem and identity and joy and happiness and all those kinds of things is through sports. I loved playing sports as a kid. Unfortunately, though, I was really small, like Zacchaeus, the, the wee little man. So kind of a, a frame of reference, kind of like a little bit bigger than Tim is today. That's what I was in middle school. So much too small to play any sort of organized sport. So I gravitated towards sports where there wasn't a need for a whole lot of size. So I played tennis and, uh, and soccer in particular. I have a really late August birthday, August 30th, if you want to get me a present. And, uh, and so because of that, I was always the youngest in my class. And then because of genetics or whatever it might be, uh, I was uh, small on top of that. And so uh, sports were difficult for me, uh, but I tried to play just about everything I could. I played baseball. Uh, and I got uh, beamed. One, one time I got hit three times by pitches in the same game, and so I got hit in the ribs and in the leg and in the helmet, and so from that point on, I stood as far out of the box as I could and just, and just walked because people could never actually throw a strike, and so I'd get on base. Uh, and, uh, and so I tried everything that I possibly could but in particular, I really wanted to play basketball. I loved the idea of being good at basketball. And so I went to uh, tryouts. And during tryouts, one of the big criterias uh, for the tryout was, can you do right-handed layups? And so I went to the coach and I asked, well, can I, as a southpaw, can I do left-handed layups? And I thought it was a reasonable request. He looked at me like I had just asked, can I shoot granny shots? Can that be the way that I try out for the team? And, uh, and so he said, no, you can't do left-handed layups. No one does left-handed layups. And I said, well, left-handers do. And, uh, but he would not let me do it. And so because of the fact that I was so small and uh, I could not apparently make a uh, right-handed layup, my right hand basically is just decor. It's like a movie prop or something. It doesn't actually do anything. And so uh, I couldn't make a right-handed layup. And so I got relegated to the B team, uh, which is not a bad thing, but I was on the, uh, the B team and uh, I took this sort of slight. I was persecuted for my size and my left-handedness and I took all of that frustration and disappointment and I poured it into practicing. And uh, so every day I would go home, I would go out into my driveway and, uh, and I would shoot baskets and I would practice my right-handed uh, layups and I would practice dribbling and then I'd lower the goal and I'd dunk because apparently that's a useful skill whenever you're like three foot something. And, uh, and so this was uh, what I did and I began to improve. And so on the B team, uh, I began to, uh, to get better and better and better. And then towards the very end of the season, finally the coach came to me one day and he looked at me and he said, Jeff, you had a really great game last week. And he said, you're going to start this week. And I was so excited, so excited about the idea of, uh, of starting. This was going to be my moment of glory. This was going to be what was going to redeem me from uh, my uh, failure at football. I'd played football. And I remember one time I was a receiver. And in middle school football, there's not a lot of throwing that goes on. It was basically sometimes you run right and sometimes you run left. And that's about the extent of the uh, strategy. And so as a receiver, I never caught the ball. But I also would sometimes uh, return kickoffs. And so one time I returned a kickoff and I had one guy to beat for a touchdown. And instead of like juking right or left or instead of swerving, 
I just ran right into him, and I just fell down because I was obviously smaller than him. And, uh, and so uh, I thought this was my ability to redeem myself from my uh, uh, sports struggles. And so uh, I'd practiced so hard. The day of the game comes. I didn't sleep the night before. The day that the game comes. And we are scrimmaging in PE for class that morning. And uh, I break two fingers on my left hand, my good hand. And, uh, and so there goes my opportunity to start, much less play the rest of the season. Now, you've probably heard the story of Michael Jordan and how he took all of his frustration and, uh, and, and sense of disappointment at being rejected in his high school uh, basketball coach and, uh, and then turned that into becoming like the greatest basketball player ever. My story is nothing like that. I did not have the size. I didn't have the talent. I didn't have the discipline. I didn't really have anything that he had. But this adversity that I felt like I faced did lead me to persevere and to practice. And adversity is a major theme of our passage this morning, this idea of suffering and how suffering is intended to produce virtue, uh, in particular the virtue of hope in the life of the believer. And so what we're seeing in, uh, in Romans 5 is this transition. Our passage this morning really is a big pivot point for the book of Romans. We are now transitioning away from uh, the uh, foundation that uh, has been laid in chapters 1 through 4, which was entirely concerning this idea of justification by faith. This is what chapters 1 through 4 are about, that God is righteous, but mankind is unrighteous. So how can a righteous God justify unrighteous men? And the way that he does that is what's called justification theologically. And so we defined uh, justification as this, uh, an act of God whereby he credits the unrighteous as having the status of righteous. And what does that mean? It means the absence of evil and the presence of moral perfection. And so we saw that this happens, this Uh, This, what's called justification by faith, it happens by God's grace and through faith. And what's really interesting is faith occurs all over the place in chapters 3 and 4. In fact, it's about 19 times that you see reference to this idea of faith in chapters 3 through 4. We will see it in verse 1, and then we'll see it in verse 2 of our passage this morning. And then you don't encounter this word faith again all the way until the end of chapter 9. Not because faith is somehow obsolete now, not because faith is unimportant for the subject matter that he's going to get into in chapters 5 through 9, but because that foundation has already been laid. The concrete has already set, and so he begins to build on this foundation of justification by faith, and we begin to see some of the effects of this justification. And so let's pray, and we'll get into the text this morning. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you uh, that you are good and generous and merciful and gracious. I thank you for the reality of justification by faith. I thank you for all of the effects that we see beginning in this passage, Lord. I pray that you would help us uh, to hear and to listen, Lord, that you would incline our hearts to your testimonies, that you would open our eyes, that we might behold wonderful things in your word, that you might unite our hearts to fear your name and satisfy us this morning with your steadfast love, Lord. I pray that you would help us Keep us from being distracted or whatever it might be, Lord, that we might hear your word and respond to it this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we'll begin in Romans 5, verse 1, Romans 5, 1, which says, Therefore, 
You see how there's the transition there. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So there's going to be two primary effects or consequences of justification that we'll see in our passage this morning. And then there's a, a number of other secondary effects, but there's two primary effects. And the first one that we get to is peace. The first fruit of justification that we see here is peace. But we actually run into an issue in the text right off the bat. Your uh, translation might say, we have peace. Your translation might also say, let us have peace. Uh, or you might have a footnote that says, let us have peace. The reason is because the, the various manuscripts that we have, the manuscript traditions, are actually split. There are a number of ancient manuscripts where it doesn't say, uh, we have peace. Instead, it has, let us have peace. We've talked about this before. This is what's called a textual variant. When there's a variation in the various uh, text traditions uh, that we have handed down uh, to us, we taught an entire theological equipping course on March 5th of 2017. So let me encourage you, if you weren't here or you've never heard of this before, go back and listen to that audio. This is nothing scary. This is nothing that should upset our faith or our confidence in God's Word. Uh, there's an entire science devoted to this. In fact, because of this, uh, we're able to recreate with absolute confidence like 99% of the New Testament and the other 1% no major doctrine is at stake or anything else, and the vast majority of those, we actually uh, are fairly certain what the Bible uh, actually says. So this is not some sort of Da Vinci Code conspiracy or anything else like that. But again, if you haven't ever heard this before, it can be somewhat shocking to know that there are varia uh, variations in our text tradition. Uh, and so come and chat with us or check out that audio. We'd love to uh, help. But this is kind of like a time I officiated a wedding for a buddy, and because it was a buddy, I agreed to his conditions, which were it was going to be an outdoor wedding in uh, August in the summer, which you should never have. So if you're planning that, you shouldn't. You should repent of that. Don't force all of your family and friends to go through that. But this is what uh, my buddy did, and because he was actually a roommate of mine, I agreed to officiate uh, his wedding. And as a gift to all of the, uh, the people who were there for the uh, rehearsal dinner, uh, he provided water bottles. And on that water bottles, it had the couple's name, so it had he and his uh, fiance, and then it had the date, and then it had a, uh, a passage of Scripture. Now, it didn't actually have the, uh, the quotation of the passage, it just had the address. It just had the address. And so, it, what it meant to say was 1 John 4.19, which says this. I think we'll put it up there. 1 John 4.19 says, we love because He first loved us. That's a good sort of wedding message, and that's what He intended to put. But instead, they put John 4.19, which is different. John 4.19 says, the woman said to Him, sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. <laughs> Not the same thing, right? You don't see that at a lot of weddings, and, uh, and so, but it was easy for us to figure out what had happened. Uh, we just simply knew he just left off a one, but one letter, one number can be really, really significant. And so you might ask the question, why is there this difference between let us have peace and the indicative, the statement of fact that we have peace? Why is there this difference? Well, in Greek, the, le the difference between let us have and since we have is literally one letter. And they kind of sound alike even, echomen versus ekomen. Uh, they sound really similar. So the difference is just one uh, letter. So you can imagine 
how a scribe, copying by hand, day after day, they didn't have Xerox machines, they didn't have uh, laser printers, they didn't even have printing presses back then, they would have to copy these things by hand, and so you could understand how they might occasionally make a mistake. And again, there's an entire science devoted to helping us understand uh, this process, but you can understand how a scribe might accidentally write uh, one instead of uh, the other. And so, although a number of manuscripts say, let us have, it's much more likely, based on the context of the passage, that Paul originally wrote, we have peace. It's not a suggestion. It's not an exhortation. It's an indicative. It's a statement of fact. This is something that is decisive. This is something that is definitive. This is something that has already occurred. He's not calling us to a position of peace. He is saying, he is proclaiming over us the fact that we already have peace with God. Now, you and I, because we are Americans living in the 21st century, we tend to really water down the concept of peace. Whenever we hear the word peace, we tend to think of sort of a hippie slogan. We tend to think of just kind of the cessation of, uh, of warfare, uh, of hostilities. Uh, we tend to think of a bumper sticker uh, or a sign that you might see on a Joe's Crab Shack shirt or something like that. That's what we think of when we think of peace. But you've got to understand from a Hebrew mindset, peace is this holistic welfare. In Hebrew, it's the word shalom. Actually, the, uh, the name Solomon is related to the, the, the word for peace. And Jerusalem, you see Salem there, is the same word for peace. Peace is this all-encompassing holistic welfare. It's prosperity. It's not just the absence of warfare. It's not just the absence of hostility. It's the presence of something as well. The presence of goodness, the presence of virtue, the presence of love, the presence of grace, the presence of all of these sorts of things. It's not merely the absence of something. It's the presence of something as well. And so this is a huge concept throughout the Bible. Jesus is called the Prince of Peace. Again, Jerusalem is the city of peace. Peace is a fruit of the Holy Spirit. Peace is this sign, this prophetic gift when the prophets are talking throughout the Old Testament of what the kingdom is going to look like. When the kingdom comes, when the kingdom is inaugurated, when the kingdom is consummated, what is the kingdom going to look like? One of the main images that they use is the image of peace. And so wrapped up in this tiny little word is this huge metaphor, this huge image, this huge denotation, this powerful image. Again, it's this prophetic hope and sign of this eschatological kingdom. Isaiah 54.10, God says, For the mountains may depart and the hills be removed, but my steadfast love shall not depart from you, and my covenant of peace shall not be removed, says the Lord who has compassion on you. Ezekiel 34.25, I will make with them a covenant of peace and banish wild beasts from the land so that they may dwell securely in the wilderness and sleep in the woods. Haggai 2.9, the latter glory of this house shall be greater than the former, says the Lord of hosts, and in this place I will give peace, declares the Lord of hosts. Zechariah 8.12, for there will be a sowing of peace. The vine shall give its fruit, and the ground shall give its produce, and the heavens shall give their dew, and I will cause the remnant of this people to possess all of these things. So if sin brings hostility and chaos, then redemption, then justification brings peace. And throughout the book of Ephesians that we did last year, throughout the book of Ephesians, we saw 
how this peace is this multifaceted affair. Sin brings all of these consequences. Sin brings separation between God and man. Sin brings separation between man and spouse. Sin brings separation between man and his fellow man. Sin brings separation between uh, man and creation. We saw all of this. It's called the fourfold, fourfold division of the fall. And so peace is this restoration of all of these dimensions. But here, he begins with this restoration of peace with God. That's the first domino to fall. And if that one falls, then everything else begins to fall uh, into place. This peace with God. We have peace with God. You were under wrath and enmity with your Creator. You were an enemy combatant. And yet God has made peace through justification. Not just that He has removed His wrath, which would be good enough, which would be gracious enough, which would be merciful enough, but He's removed this and replaced it instead with love, with grace, with mercy. And He's made peace through justification. Somehow, peace and justification walk hand in hand. They're bound together they're connected throughout scriptures. You remember those old commercials for the My Buddy dolls? Wherever you go, he's going to go. That's like peace and righteousness that we see throughout uh, the scriptures. Psalm 35, 27 says, Let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad and say forevermore, Great is the Lord who delights in the welfare of his servant. That word welfare is shalom. It's peace, prosperity, this holistic uh, sense of, uh, of, of prosperity uh, for His people. Psalm 72.3, let the mountains bear prosperity. That's shalom, peace for the people and the hills in righteousness. Again, you see the connection between righteousness and uh, peace. 80, uh, Psalm 85.10, let steadfast love and faithfulness meet righteousness and peace kiss each other. Isaiah 32, 17 through 18, and the effects of righteousness will be peace, and the result of righteousness, quietness, and trust forever. My people will abide in a peaceful habitation, in secure dwellings, and in quiet resting places. Isaiah 48, 18, oh, that you had paid attention to my commandments, then your peace would have been like a river, and your righteousness like the waves of the sea. So we see here that righteousness and peace are complementary concepts. They go together. They kiss each other is the imagery there. They're married to each other, which means that where you and I lack peace, it's because we fail to remember and rejoice in our righteousness. We're failing to apply our justification. Where we're living in anxiety or stress or despair or uh, depression or whatever it means, that we're failing to recognize that peace is this inherent implication of our justification an inherent implication of the fact that we have been declared, we've been counted, we've been reckoned righteous in Christ, that we're no longer under wrath. But not just that we've had wrath removed from us, we've had it replaced with love. We are in God's love, and we are recipients of grace, which is where he goes next in verse 2. Through him we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. So we see here the second result, the first fruit or result is peace. The second one is grace. For all of my childhood, we lived across, the town, uh, across town 
uh, from my great-grandmother. And I was actually closer to my great-grandmother than I was to, uh, to my grandparents. We would spend the night at her house. Uh, we went to the same church as her. And so I loved her. We called her Nanal. And, uh, and so I loved her. And when I got to be old enough to drive, I would just unexpectedly, surprisingly, just show up at her house. I didn't have cell phones back then, and, uh, and so just show up at her house. And you know what? She never didn't unlock the door for me. She never didn't welcome me into her house. So I knew there was always uh, this invitation, this open invitation for her to show up. She was never upset that I would interrupt her soap operas or Lawrence Welk or whatever it was that she was watching. She not only tolerated my presence, she actually treasured it. And she would then treat me. She'd give me Werther's Originals and, uh, and Peppermints and these uh, sorts of things. She loved the fact that I was uh, showing up at her house unannounced. In, uh, in the book of Esther, you might be familiar with this, uh, there is this tradition that the kings of Persia had uh, whereby you were not allowed to approach the king unannounced. You were not allowed to approach the king without an invitation. If you did so, the penalty was death. That was the penalty, unless he holds out his scepter toward you, in which case you would live. By the way, I'm going to institute this policy for staff because they always interrupt me, and so this is going to be a new sort of staff policy uh, for us. But this is sort of the imagery that you get here in this passage, that we have obtained access by grace. The scepter is always extended toward us. The door is always opened for us. We don't have to worry about permission to approach His throne. It's extended. It's invited. We're invited in. And it's interesting the way that He talks here. He says, we've obtained access by faith into this grace. Into grace. It's almost as if He's talking about grace as being some sort of sphere or realm or dominion or something like that. When Casey and I bought our house, for some reason, uh, the inside of the house was just completely white. Everything in it was white. The walls were white. The doors were white. The cabinets were white. Uh, the, the floors were uh, just white tile. Uh, and then other parts were white carpet. They even left, for some reason, I don't know why, they just left this white couch. It was like an ins- insane asylum or something like that. But the, I, the imagery there is this is... The house that has been uh, built for us is this house of grace. Everywhere we look, the decor is grace. As my house, everywhere we looked, it was white. Now, everywhere we look in this house, in this realm that we inhabit, there is just grace. Every door is grace. The ceilings are grace. The walls are grace. Every room is grace. Every picture that's hung is grace. Every clock on the wall is grace. Everything that we encounter is grace. And it says we have obtained this. In Greek, this is called a perfect tense. It means something that's a completed action with ongoing, present, uh, continuous aspects or implications. Something that's already happened But there are ongoing progressive implications. We have already obtained this grace, and it continues on into the future. You ever seen a a store or something like that that says open 24-7, and then under it it says closed Sundays? You ever seen something like that? It's kind of like uh, uh, in Princess Bride. I don't think that means what you think it means. Uh, That's how some of us might think of God's grace. It's generally open for us. God is generally loving. 
God is generally merciful. God is generally gracious toward us. But occasionally, surely, His grace is closed. Occasionally, there are times when He's frustrated. Occasionally, there's times where He's disappointed. Occasionally, there's times where He is angry with us. But that's what this passage is saying, that it never closes. The door of grace is always opened for us, and it remains that way to this day. If you've been justified, then you have peace. It doesn't close when you sin. It doesn't close when you're weary. It doesn't close when you wrestle with doubt or uncertainty or insecurity or whatever it might be. It is always open to you. You always have access to grace because you always have access to God Himself. And His disposition toward you if you're in Christ is love and grace. And if that doesn't cause you to rejoice, which is what this passage says, then you haven't begun to grasp the fringes of what grace really entails. And you haven't begun to grasp what is meant by this phrase, the hope of the glory of God. Now, hope means a lot of things. It's a name. Some people have the name hope. We have a hope in here. As we tend to use it, though, there's at least two different nuances, two different ways that we use it. First, we might use it for something like, I hope I win the lottery, or I hope my Aggies win a championship sometime before I die. We use it for something we want to happen, but it's highly unlikely. It's not probable. Uh, It is uh, possible. The second usage is something that's probable, but uh, not certainly not certain. I might use it uh, whenever I'm about to propose to Casey, and I might say, I really hope that she says yes. We've had talks about marriage. I'm pretty certain she was going to say yes whenever I proposed to her, but I wasn't absolutely certain or else I wouldn't have been so nervous, uh, and yet I was. I hope my car starts every morning. Some mornings it doesn't, though, right? This is the second way that we use it, something that is probable but also not certain. That is not the way the Bible is using the word hope here. It's not something that is possible but not probable. It's not something that's probable but not certain. It is using it for an absolute certainty. It's an assured confidence. The best example that I could come up with this, uh, for this is, uh, I've talked before about how sometimes the staff will play man pong. It's this game that, uh, that was uh, made up. I think Zach actually invented it with some buddies in, uh, in Bible school. And, uh, and so we'll play this game, and we just kind of randomly figure out who's going to be on each team uh, by throwing a little ball at a paddle. And, uh, and so the more you learn about the game, the, the less cool it sounds, I'm sure. And, and, so, and so occasionally we'll play this game, and we just split up randomly into teams. And, uh, and so the best example that I can think of of this type of hope is when Zach and I are on each other's team. There is no chance whatsoever that Tim and Carl are ever going to beat us, and so it is, there's no fear, there's no anxiety, there's no stress, there's nothing like that. It is an absolute assured confidence that we're going to win uh, in this. That's this sort of biblical hope. Not something that's possible, not something that's probable, something that is going to happen. It's not false confidence. It isn't possible or even probable. It isn't wishful thinking. It's absolutely and utterly certain. When you see Paul use this uh, reference to hope, that's the imagery that you should think of, the imagery of something that is absolutely certain. This is the hope of glory that he's talking about. Glory for the believer isn't just a possibility. 
It isn't just a probability. It's certain and assured, which is why he says that we can rejoice now. There's a lot of areas in our life where we have to hold our rejoicing until later. We have to hold our applause. We don't know if our favorite athlete is going to make the shot or not, or going to score the touchdown or not. So we have to hold, we have to wait kind of with bated breath as we're waiting to see, can we rejoice now? Are our hopes going to come to fruition? Am I going to get that promotion at work or not? Is North and South Korea, are they going to reconcile or not? We have to wait. We hope we're waiting upon it. But Paul says, because we have this hope of glory and because this is an assured confidence, we can rejoice even now as if it's already come to fruition because it's so certain that it's going to come to fruition. So it should be the easiest thing in the world for us as believers, knowing this glory, to hope in it even now. And that's not all that we rejoice in. Let's look in verses 3 through 4, which says, not only that, But we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. So not only do we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God, but in all those things that lead us to that hope, including suffering. Now, as we talk about suffering, there can be a tendency in all of us On one hand, there can be those who would elevate their particular circumstances and their particular sufferings and look around at others and say, you haven't suffered like me. And so we look down upon them. On the other hand, are those of us who have lived a relatively easy life. And so we look around and we almost feel ashamed and self-pity because we look around at the sufferings of others and we think, I'm nowhere near suffering like them. But the Bible's going to flatten this down. There's a famous scene in, uh, in the movie Jaws uh, where they're on uh, this boat and they're comparing scars and trying to kind of one-up each other on all of their scars. And there can be a, a tendency among believers for us to do that, to kind of one-up each other, to compare our scars on this sort of sliding scale of suffering. But one of the things that we'll encounter in our text this morning is the fact that this is uh, kind of a flat a level playing ground. We'll see just how holistic, how universal this suffering really is in our body right now. Right now, in this room, there are people with terminal cancer. Right now, in this room, there are parents whose children have uh, an incurable disorder or disease. Right now, in this room, there are people who have lost children. There are people who have lost parents. There are people who have lost their spouses. There are people who have been abandoned. And there have been people who have been abused. Those are weighty examples of suffering, absolutely. But one of the most compelling aspects of this text is that it doesn't just restrict it to those really heavy sorts of suffering. It's universal in its application. Every one of us in this room today experiences some form of suffering that falls under this text. This text, in other words, has no exceptions. There's no exceptions. There's no form of suffering that's too great, and there's no form of suffering that is too small for this text to speak to. So whether your suffering is cold, a cold, or a cancer, whether your suffering is a martyrdom or mastoiditis like my little girl had, It's poverty or persecution or debt or divorce or depression or despair or death or whatever it might be. This text 
applies to you. And so we need to be careful not to compare our scars as if grace is sufficient for some, but not for others. And here is where this idea that's called the prosperity gospel begins to crumble. Because the prosperity gospel is no gospel at all. So what is the prosperity gospel? I want to talk a little bit about this. This is this false teaching. This false teaching that claims that God desires you to be healthy and wealthy right now. And so all you have to do is name it and claim it. That's all you have to do. That and you have to send in a little bit of money to a guy with diamond cufflinks and a Rolls Royce and a G5 jet or whatever uh, it might be. This so-called prosperity gospel prostitutes God's promises. In theological terms, what we call this is an overrealized eschatology. Eschatology is the study of the end times, the, thing, the study of things to come. It's an overrealized eschatology. It's a fancy term that refers to uh, the belief that we can have now what God has promised later. God promises in His Word. He promises to remove sickness and poverty and death. And so what the prosperity gospel is, is that we can claim that now. Because He's promised it later, we can go on and have that now, which is kind of like if you promise your kid they can have ice cream after dinner, you are upset if they immediately go into the kitchen and begin to eat an entire gallon of bluebell and claim, but you told me so. No, you clearly said, I told you that that would happen after dinner. That's the crucial difference between the prosperity gospel and biblical theology is that they have reached into the future, looked at things that God has promised in the future, and are attempting to apply them in the present. God has made promises for us that we would be healthy. God has made promises for us that we would be wealthy in a sense. God has made promises for us that there would be no sickness, that there would be uh, no division, that there would be no death, any of those sorts of things. But when has He promised those things would come about? Not now. It's in the resurrection. So what we see is this prosperity gospel imagery. It's going to crush the weak, the impoverished, the oppressed. It puts a millstone around their neck by promising something now that God has promised later, such that when these people don't get it, what's their only conclusion? I guess God is not faithful. They've misapplied, they've misinterpreted the promises of God. It's this theological Ponzi scheme, but the practitioners of it are a million times worse than the Bertie Madoffs of the world. Because as you read the Bible, you come across this idea of suffering You can love God, and God can truly delight in and love you. And you can be full of faith, and yet you die, and you get cancer, and your kid dies, and your kid gets cancer. Joseph, the son of Jacob, this man who is faithful, is betrayed, enslaved, slandered, and imprisoned. Job has almost everything stripped from him. His children his wealth, his friends, his reputation, his dignity. John the Baptist is imprisoned and beheaded. Paul is beaten, starved, stoned, shipwrecked, bitten by a snake, persecuted by his brothers, imprisoned and ultimately killed. Jesus Christ, the very definition of faith and love, the supreme object of his Father's affection, is betrayed and slaughtered. 
So yes, we have peace with God. We have unlimited access to unlimited grace, and yet we're not exempt from suffering. In fact, you see the exact opposite in Scripture most of the time. It seems throughout Scripture that those who most love God and those who are most loved by God seem to have it the hardest, seem to suffer the most. And why would they not? In light of Romans chapter 1, where we saw that God's wrath is poured out on mankind by Him giving them exactly what they want. That's a sign of God's wrath, is that He gives you exactly what you want, whereas God's love means that He disciplines you. He he allows you to experience hardship. He causes you to experience suffering for your ultimate good and glory. As Spurgeon said, those who dive deep in the sea of affliction bring up rare pearls. And so prosperity is coming in a day. There is a day when we'll know the holistic sense of this peace, when this peace with God would knock down all the other dominoes and we would have peace with everything. There is a day that's coming. Prosperity is coming, but it comes first through this period of adversity. And so Paul tells us to rejoice in our sufferings, not merely that we rejoice through suffering, or not that just that we uh, rejoice in the midst of our sufferings, but we rejoice even in suffering. Why? Because of what follows, that we boast in the seed and the soil of suffering because of the eventual fruit of sanctification and glory. See, suffering in Paul's theology leads to endurance, which produces character, which strengthens our hope. This is the great treadmill of tribulation upon which our faith is exercised so our hope doesn't atrophy. And he says one more thing about hope in verse 5. He says, and hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope does not put us to shame. In other words, it's not like those other forms of hope. It's not just a possibility or a probability. Hope is not like that guy who rents a scoreboard at a uh, ball game and really hopes his girlfriend's going to say yes, and then he proposes, and she says no, and he's embarrassed in front of thousands of strangers. That is not biblical hope. It does not put us to shame. It does not humiliate us. It does not disappoint us at all. Rather, this Christ-honoring hope is vindicated. It's proven It's justified. It's demonstrated to be correct. It doesn't fall or falter. One of my favorite books, one of my favorite movies as well, is Lonesome Dove. I don't know if you've seen it or read it. Uh, But in it, there is this line where the great prophet, Gus McRae, speaks of another character named Jake Spoon, and he says that uh, Jake is far too leaky a vessel for anyone to put much hope in. He's always been too leaky a vessel for anyone to put much hope in. Well, the gospel never leaks. That's the image that Paul is using here. The gospel never leaks, so it holds all of your hope. It doesn't spill a single drop. None of it is wasted. None of it is put to shame. Why? Because God's infinite love is lavishly poured into our hearts through the Spirit. God's infinite love is lavishly poured into our hearts through the Spirit. Again, which means that where we give in to depression or despair, or thoughts of condemnation, or shame, or whatever it might be as we go through suffering, demonstrates that we really don't believe that God loves us, and that God is for us. 
So this theology changes how we think of suffering and adversity and tribulations and trials and all of these sorts of things. This should be a radical reorientation for us and our perspective as we consider the sufferings that we encounter in this present age. We talk all the time here about, uh, at Parkway about how our theology is the, uh, the ceiling for our doxology. In other words, what we know about God is in some sense a fuel of our worship of God. The more that we know of Him, the more able we are to worship Him. What we want to do is to gather kindling around our hearts that the Holy Spirit might inflame those. And what this text is saying is that not only theology matters, but our eschatology matters. In fact, according to this passage, I would say our eschatology is everything. Eschatology is everything. I don't mean by eschatology, study of the end times. I don't mean things like whether you're pre-mill or post-mill or ah-mill or whether you're pre-trib or post-trib or mid-trib or mid-wrath or all of these sorts of things. Uh, If you don't know what any of those things mean, it's not important. Uh, I don't mean any of these sort of uh, peripheral aspects of eschatology. I mean the central core hope of the Christian, which is that Jesus is coming, that there will be a resurrection of the dead, that there will be a new heavens and a new earth, and there will be an end to mourning, there will be an end to pain, there will be an end to suffering. Whatever it is that you're experiencing in your life that is suffering, that is a trial, that is tribulation, that is adversity, that will come to an end. Eschatology is everything. We can endure in the present because we see the future and what God is going to do when this kingdom is not merely inaugurated as it is now, but when it is consummated and when this peace with God begins to overflow and create peace with everything. So eschatology is everything. What you think of the future affects how you live in the present and God's present love is manifest through the Spirit who is this guarantee of His future love. It's a down payment. I've mentioned before that I worked at Marshall's in high school, and at Marshall's we had this layaway plan. We had an entire layaway department in the shoe department. You remember those? People used to use layaway. I don't know. Maybe they still do. Uh, But people would come in, and they would pay a little bit each month, a dollar here, a dollar there. They would pay until they've actually paid for it, and then there's a little bit of interest as well, so you end up paying more than you actually should have paid for your guest jeans or Tommy Hilfiger shirt or CK1 cologne or whatever it was that you would put on, uh, on uh, layaway here. But we had hundreds of items. Every single month, we would have hundreds of items that we would have to, uh, uh, to look at and have to put into a, a stock room uh, of, of things that were just simply unclaimed. Someone would pay for a month or two months, and then they would never pick them up, and we'd never hear from them again. God's love, though, isn't like that. The Spirit is the deposit of His love, and God doesn't lose His deposit. And though you and I face adversity, God doesn't face adversity. There's no no adverse situation that's going to uh, suddenly surprise Him whereby He suddenly doesn't have the funds to complete payment. God doesn't lose His job. God doesn't have some sort of sickness that creates all of these medical bills for him. God doesn't have any of these unknown, unexpected expenses. And so God is always faithful to redeem the things that he has put a down payment on. 
This passage is saying that He's poured His love into our hearts in the present so that we might rest in future love and future grace. So we see here that hope, this hope that's grounded in love, it becomes this image of this anchor for our souls such that no matter what waves come, what waves come and crash around us, we're able to rejoice in our suffering because we know that these waves ultimately smooth off the edges of our sin. And we also know that one day Jesus is coming, and as He has stilled a storm before, so He will still a storm again, this time for eternity. This passage is saying that if you believe that, if you believe this hope of glory, then you will rejoice in the present. You'll find a voice to rejoice in the midst of the suffering. We rejoice in our sufferings because we have peace with God, and hope doesn't disappoint, and God's love never runs dry. Let's pray. Father, I thank You for Your Word this morning. I just confess that it's an impossible word for us in our own strength, in the flesh. It's impossible for us to conjure up rejoicing as we experience the sufferings of this present world. As we look around us and we see chaos and hostility and enmity and disorder and all of these sorts of things. And so I pray, Lord, that You would give us eyes to see and ears to hear through this eschatological lens of the coming day when what has been inaugurated in Your Son will be consummated. That might then play back in the, future, in, in the present and help us to worship and rejoice. Lord, we pray these things because You're good and You do good. You've made peace and given us love. And so we pray in Christ's name. Amen.